You are now listening to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Wait, the answer was Add 10 Gallons? Add 10 Gallons. My first thought was, we got to put Axe Chill in there. Yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> Trucks on the way. On the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I've got two observations, uh, neither of which are really educated or well thought out. <laughs> which are like most of my observations are. There aren't a lot of problems on a job site that can't be solved with a sack full of biscuits. Today's episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast is brought to you by Actigel 208. Actigel 208 is a high-performance additive for the concrete industry that is greatly beneficial to the producer. It enables them to increase the percentage of manufactured sand by up to 100% and completely replace all the natural sand in the mix. In areas where natural sand is scarce, inconsistent, and expensive, this provides a huge benefit to any ready-mix company out there. Benefits of manufactured sand and concrete include consistent air content, improved compaction, and increased density. Now in the past, the downside of using manufactured sands was that they were hard to pump, hard to place, and hard to finish. Well, Actigel 208 solves all those issues. By improving suspension, stability, and the quality of the cement paste in the mix, Actigel overcomes the old issues with manufactured sand and leaves them behind. Let Actigel 208 improve the quality of your mix while saving money on every yard you produce. For more information, visit us at actigel.com. That's A-C-T-I-G-E-L dot com. Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to another installment of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Thanks for being with us. I'm joined, as always, by Paul and Joey. Paul, what's going on, man? Oh, doing good, brother. It's actually hot up here in Pennsylvania. feels like Tennessee weather or something. It's in the 90s, man. It's awesome. You'll have that. A few degrees cooler, but every bit of the humidity. So it, it feels about the same. Um, speaking of that weather down south, Joey, what's up, man? How are you? It's uh, when you step outside, it's like standing in someone's mouth. That's about how the weather is. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's well, happy, happy summer, gentlemen. It took the summer a good bit, uh, a long time to get here, at least up in the mid-Atlantic. Um, but sure enough, here we are complaining about how hot it was when just a month ago it wouldn't stop raining and it was about 50 degrees for three straight weeks. So life comes at you fast. Summer came and hit us hard down here. It went from pleasant to I'm ready for a frost real quick. <laughs> yeah, my buddies in Alabama were texting me and uh, like after Easter, it was like 100 degrees outside. And I was, you know, I was actually a little bit jealous because it was like 45 degrees here. Dude, it was crazy. It, it stayed cool for so long up here. It was almost annoying. But most of June has been incredibly pleasant, you know. 60s 70s uh you know but then like sprinkled in you have days of 95 you're like man come on make up your mind are we are we in the south are we in Sudbury Ontario like where are we right now (laughs) what are we doing here but overall can't complain yeah and and for our listeners at home uh they should know that no one hates summertime weather more than Joey Bell (laughs) if he could live in the month of October and November for the entirety of of his existence he, he certainly would yeah, I've never, ever liked summer. Growing up on the farm, worked all day, you know, out in that heat, doing hay, cattle, just whatever. And it was miserable. While everybody else that, you know, got off for summer break during school, they were, you know, laying around at home or doing whatever, going to the river and lakes and everything else. No, 
with none of that. Wait, so so is that what this is? It's not about like the sunshine and nice weather. It's the fact that you're you have PTSD from having to work hard as a child. Then the heat. I hate the heat. I mean, I can always put clothes on. Is how I feel. I've never liked summertime. Anything about it. The only thing I like about summertime is air conditioning. <laughs> well, good news is this is America, and you're allowed to be wrong. Mm. <laughs> well, one place that we will not catch Joey Bell, at least as a permanent resident in that case, is Las Vegas. And uh, <laughs> I wanted to bring this to your attention, fellas. In an episode not too long ago, we had talked about how they were putting a, a loop, a tunnel loop, underneath the Las Vegas Convention Center. We talked about it in a previous episode where we highlighted the world of concrete. And being in Las Vegas, the one world of concrete the first one back after the pandemic, they had it in June or July, and Joey and I went out there. And for the outdoor exhibits, we didn't spend a whole lot of time out there. Uh, we we spent a lot of time indoors, but um, but we talked about how they had an underground tunnel loop where you could uh, get down in this tunnel, and and a Tesla Model X and or Model Y or whatever would drive you from one end of the convention to the other took a 25 minute walk down to about a two minute ride and you could get from one end to the other uh, pretty quickly. Well, Vegas thought this was cool and uh, they just greenlit the approval for the boring company, which is a tunnel boring company owned by Elon Musk. Uh, They're going to put an entire loop in downtown Las Vegas now. Uh, The bureaucracy of this can be a little slow, but... um, the Las Vegas City Council just unanimously approved the agreement with Elon Musk and his company, and it permits Boring to build, own, and operate the tunnels underneath the Strip, which is unique because uh, the Boring Company is funding this. They're they're running it with really without any huge oversight from the Las Vegas City Council. The money's coming through private stakeholders and the hotels themselves within Las Vegas, they will be paying for private stops at their properties. The loop is going to be about 34 miles in total distance with about 50, well, with at least 55 stops. Um, Within this article that I'm reading here, um, Mike Jansen is the executive director of infrastructure for the city of, of Las Vegas. He said they're at about step two out of eight. There's a long way to go with a lot of work to do. But um, if he had to guess, they will be boring within the next calendar year to start this project. It's a 50-year non-exclusive agreement with the boring company to give them the right of way to operate and maintain the project. And this is also another thing that I thought was unique. So the Tesla vehicles that will be operating in this tunnel they're not going to be self-driving completely. Um, you're going to have drivers for the cars that are operating this tunnel system, and they are going to be employees of the boring company. So they're actually going to be paid by the boring company. This is going to be a service completely brought to the city of Las Vegas by the boring company. So they're going to make the loop. They're going to maintain the loop. They are also going to provide transportation within the loop. And it's all going to be, you know, self-contained with very little, if no, interjection from the city of Las Vegas themselves. Roughly $52 million bill for the tunnel in general. Um, but with the success of the small tunnel around the convention center, 
comes the larger tunnel around the entire city. And now they're looking to expand to cities, most notably like Miami and even San Antonio, Texas, where there is a, an, inter, an underground loop from the San Antonio International Airport to their downtown area that's going to have a price tag of about $300 million that is in the works. So my general takeaway from this is it's, it's more efficient and cheaper to go underground than it is to fly like flying cars and drones and things like that. You know, all the futuristic movies that we saw, we saw flying cars, but the reality is that's loud and expensive and mm -hmm. uh, it's hard enough. <laughs> you know, air traffic controllers can tell you that their job isn't easy. So imagine the general public being able to fly around a hundred foot off the ground. <laughs> um, so it's a lot easier to go underground. It, it seems like these projects, in my opinion, are relatively cheap. I mean, you're talking about a loop that goes from the airport to downtown San Antonio for less than $300 million. I mean, that is, that's a lot cheaper than I thought it would be. I said, I thought the same thing. When you said the number for all those projects, the yeah. Las Vegas tunnel, all of them. And I was like, no, nah, there's no way. <laughs> no, I read, I read that two or three times. Those, those numbers were, were, you know, direct quote from the article I was reading, um, coming straight from the company themselves within the agreement. Um, so yeah, a lot cheaper than I thought it would be. And my final takeaway from all this is things get done quicker and better and cheaper when the private sector takes care of it and local <laughs> municipalities and federal <laughs> municipalities stay the hell out of the way. Man, this, this story hit all of your favorite things in the world there, didn't it? Elon Musk, <laughs> technology, private industry over public industry. That's awesome. Yep. Could be happier about it. <laughs> Can't Does, wait to uh, use it. Is boring the company that, or would they use one of those giant boring machines? You guys know what I'm talking about? That like mm -hmm. sets yeah. the precast panels in behind it. I always thought that was so fascinating. I thought that was yeah. so cool. Yeah, they're uh, they're actually called tunnel boring machines, TBMs, yeah. and they're massive. And the the face of it, you know, looks like a kraken. If mm -hmm. we know <laughs> yes. <laughs> to mechanically design one with all its teeth and everything and yeah it is cool that like as it spins it, it spits out the dirt and then behind it you, you actually have options of how you want to uh, fill in and support behind it but yeah there's some out there that put interlocking precast panels that are like loaded into it like a pez dispenser on the mm -hmm. back side of this tunnel boring machine and as uh, old buddy drills through he gets to a certain segment and, uh, you know it pez dispenses uh, a couple of these uh, precast panels that uh, form a complete tunnel shell uh, to protect everybody on the inside from a cave-in. It, it's always cool to see those videos, too, where they break through, like, the surface when they're done with the tunnel. You ever seen one of those where they, like, come through the side of a hill or a mountain or whatever? It kind of looks like a, uh, I don't know, like, back in the day, a cartoon, like, bad guy, super villain with a, a super crazy drilling machine or whatever and he's like just flying yeah. to the earth that's kind of what it looks yeah. like just breaking through there it's much less dramatic but it's still super cool to see and you get you see a like how the uh the face that you're talking about how it actually like digs and moves through there and it's pretty incredible i, I like josh's point of view about like hey we all thought the future is gonna be flying cars but what if the future is actually tunneling mm -hmm. and you know one of the downsides i don't think anybody 
really thought and even today you don't you may not notice if you're just watching something on a video but if somebody's flying around like a human-sized drone it's like a quadcopter or or even an octocopter that joker is loud it is yeah. so loud i mean just go next to a helicopter think about how loud a helicopter is and now now you got eight mini helicopters or four mini helicopters you know riding around some dude on a on a jetpack seat and they're so so loud there's it'd be almost impossible to have thousands of those flying around how do you control people in the sky just i mean oh, look, i'm glad i'm not the one having to design you know the sky traffic roadway systems <laughs> could you imagine having no. to figure that out well and and on top of that they would have to be autonomous because i don't trust half of these people to know how to drive let alone fly anything like i do <laughs> where i live here outside of philly nobody nobody minds the signs here on the roadways like <laughs> right. it, it says stop and it's like no that's that says suggestion Suge <laughs> this sign says suggest to slow down what one of my dad's isms and he has many of them as i'm sure i'm sure most people listening their dad always has sayings well my dad when he came up to a stop sign he'd always say the white line around it means it's optional <laughs> <laughs> what's crazy what's crazy here though is that you can't turn right on red lights around I here know. I know. so it's horrible no kidding. nobody turns right on a red light but also nobody obeys stop signs they've got it <laughs> completely backwards in uh yep. in regards to the the las vegas project y'all were talking about and tunneling versus flying i just got to thinking about it how much more advanced in underground structure are we versus you know flying things you know as far as private sector you know we've been digging tunnels for thousands of years and just improved and improved and improved on that technology. It would, it's much more safer, it seems to me like, to build tunnels on the ground and let everyday Joes drive in them than to let everyday Joes fly something through the air and risk crashing into no telling what and killing no telling who. Yeah. Well, I like that this uh, Boring Company's version doesn't let any average Joe right in it you're actually mm -hmm. getting so you've actually got a situation where it's not going to be like the tunnels over here in maryland and dc where good freaking luck getting through there you know the lincoln tunnel you have at it brother that's all you i'm not yeah. going anywhere near it so you know it's not going to be like that you're controlling the uh, car traffic through there how it's going to work um for this particular model that uh, they have a 3d model that I was looking at for the one in Vegas, they're going to have above ground, almost look like subway stations where, you know, you, you go through on ground level, um, pay your, pay your toll or ticket or get your pass or whatever. Um, the cars will come up on the surface, you load into the car, then they go underground. And then, like I said, there's several stops on the loop, but the stops themselves are above ground. Oh, the, that's the, great. The tunnel system is below ground. Well, one of the other things about this, you know, first thing I thought when you started saying the story was, uh, you know, this is going to get stopped by the monorail company. Mm. Like this completely threatens all the investment that they've put into that, all the revenue they get out of that. It, it threatens that a billion times over. And one of the problems with the monorail system, as good as it is, really, I mean, if you've if you've used it, it actually works pretty well. But one of the issues is is it's only on one side of the strip, and in some cases, it's actually pretty far away. And so you've actually got to walk if you're if you were staying on the other side of the strip at, at Aria, and you needed to go to the 
to the next closest stop and you've got to go past the flamingo and down two blocks and another four blocks you had to walk quite a ways to get to the, just even get to the monorail and then walk up the stairs and to it so if you can instead have it go on both sides of the strip which is what it sounds like it's going to do it's going to make a loop and those stops are above ground i mean you're you're winning private cars i mean golly this is going to destroy that monorail and so if i'm the guy who's depending on that revenue from that monorail and put all that money into it you better believe i'm about to fight elon musk tooth and nail not to let this happen <laughs> yeah so fun fact about the las vegas monorail so let me let me wrap to you a little bit about that so it is only 3.9 miles long uh, it's an automated monorail system uh, located adjacent to the Las Vegas Strip. It connects, uh, you know, several casinos to the unincorporated communities of Paradise and Winchester, but it does not technically enter the city of Las Vegas. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I found hmm. that kind of kind of interesting. But it was privately owned and operated by the Las Vegas Monorail Company, but they went bankrupt in 2020. It was then sold to the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority. The Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority is also the governing body that greenlit the underground tunnel around the Las Vegas Convention Center. So reading between the lines here, they probably bought the monorail to save it as, you know, I mean, it's, it's a good tool for tourists, especially going to and from the convention center. But maybe it's not a sustainable system. Uh, where you know maintenance and scheduling and and staffing and things of that nature might be more expensive than what it's worth, so they might be looking for other options while they kind of prop up the monorail system now. But I guess it's a means to an end. Incredible! Of all the businesses that went out of business in 2020 due to our government responses to the COVID 19 pandemic, the Las Vegas monorail was one of the casualties. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Makes sense, man. No one was buying tickets for it. No. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely not. Stay away yeah. from that. So, so considering that, like, think about how much all the other subway systems in this country that yeah. were publicly funded, technique, really, how much they lost yeah. and would have gone bankrupt if they weren't being subsidized by Josh Harris Paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I found a, an interesting story about transportation in the concrete industry and but it was about like the mixture trucks themselves and how they've become these multimedia hubs and i you know a thought occurred to me that there is an opportunity for somebody out there to really define a new market and you know how long i mean or how often does something come along and you have the ability to truly define a market. It doesn't happen that often, but we're in the middle of a technological revolution right now. And it's actually centered around concrete trucks. And one of the things we're seeing right now is you've got companies like Cortex who are coming in and they're installing systems on trucks that have safety cameras, they have sensors, and they have, uh, and they have the ability for like tracking your vehicles. You know, there's several systems out there like that. We just happen to know the guys at Cortex. Uh, you've got truck uh, monitoring, concrete monitoring systems that people are attaching to the hatches of the truck. So you've got command assurance and seek a smart hatch uh, that are giving guys wealth of information. Then you've got the DOTs that are coming online with e-ticketing. So you've got paperless ticketing and reporting 
uh, over to the DOTs and to the owners of sites and different things. You've got the concrete curing people. So you got the sensors like from Geotech that are going down into the concrete and you've got the people who are doing the smart curing of the cylinders, different things. So you've got all this technology that's is coming online, uh, but you, we've got, we've actually got a fundamental problem and that is none of these systems talk to one another. And all of these systems, when you put them in, they all come with their own device. And they say, all right, well, you need you know, a tablet in, on hand for the e-ticketing. Oh, you need this other camera tablet system so you can see your security cameras. Oh, you need this other tablet system so that you can read what's going on with your smart hatch. And here in a second, the drivers are going to have, you know, be outfitted with seven screens trying to navigate everything. What we really need someone to do is we need someone to come along and they did to become what Apple is to computers that some company becomes that to the concrete world. And if you can become the mobile mixing hub for concrete technology, and all of a sudden the way Apple has app developers come to them for the worldwide developer conference and say, here's how you write applications to work on our operating system. We need somebody in the concrete space to do the same thing as Apple and say, all right, guys, anyone who wants to develop software to go onto this truck or into concrete plants, here's the operating system. Now build your app around this. We'll use one tablet. It'll go in the truck. It'll, it could be a large phase. It could, in fact, if, if the people who are making the truck wanted to build this in, you know, build the actual tablet into the dashboard and says, all right, now they become the, the hardware supplier and the, the Apple of, of the concrete world. And they say, all right, guys, if you want it, you know, here's how you need to write it. Let's build it together. And so you have one device that can handle the e-ticketing, can give you access to the cameras, can give you the data from the smart hatches and different things. And that to me is, is the next opportunity for a billion dollar idea to revolutionize the concrete world. All these products and programs that you just talked about, do they not have, you know, an app? Like say you had the one tablet, you know, in the truck for the driver and you have like Geotech, Command, all these other companies, would they not have an, could they not have an app on that same one tablet? Yeah, some do, not all do. And so if you have all of these systems talking to one another, especially if you're going to be mobile, like on a truck, having them all fit into the same system is where you need to be. So if you can tell every DOT that, Hey, you need to write the code to your websites, to your systems into an app on this platform or that platform, then those things would probably work. But right now it's very scattered. So you're either using a video, a lot of these video camera and, and devices are standalone. You know, they're, they're hmm. wired right up to that and they're not running through a, a wireless signal in, into an app. And so mm -hmm. if you want everything to be streamlined, you have the opportunity to not just lock it into an Apple device or lock it into an Android device. You have the ability to lock it into your own device. And maybe that is built. That doesn't mean they have to create their own operating system. It could be built on an Android platform, but somebody that comes along and says, okay, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to build it on this platform. This we're going to standardize this so that 
we can all be sure we're doing the right thing at the right time and, and it becomes seamless and it becomes integrated because right now it's incredibly fractured it's exciting because yeah. everybody's coming up with all these ideas but they're writing their code on this platform or that platform and nothing's talking to each other mm-hmm. and somebody needs to come in on the back end and say all right i've created the multimedia hub it's going to be inside the truck and that's because that's where all that's where the future is going is they're given access to the drivers they're training the drivers better than ever telling them what to look for people can read it on the back end at the at the batch house uh you can read it offsite in hq of what's going on at a plant you know 30 miles away but having mm-hmm. it all centrally located on one system i think is what is really the next big thing here it'll be interesting to see who who takes the reins there um because i'm sure wheels are in motion or at least i hope they are but it could literally be anybody it could be anybody from uh from an admix company it could be from the truck producer themselves it could really be anybody with enough capital to get this project off the ground. And we talk about it all the time. You go to World of Concrete, now one of the biggest halls is where they have all the tech companies. And there's new startups every other day that, that pop up, it seems like. All, all it might take is one coalition or one company to come through, but it can come from any side of the industry. So it'll be really interesting to see who's actually ready to take the reins there and, and get the job done. It's exciting to see all this text. It almost seems to me like it kind of almost just popped up or at least it just seems like it was just here recently that a couple of the big ready mix producers that we've been in contact with adopted some of these technological advances and i'm starting to see it trickle you know through the industry now one of our customers is a big you know they they have a lot of those sent those command sensors in their trucks and uh we've got other prospects and people that we talk to throughout the industry and i refer them back to you know the guys that already have them in the trucks because they're all they're all curious about them i think this all this information is doing nothing but good things for the industry especially like we've all you know we always like to give the truck drivers a hard time you know these truck drivers now have all kinds of information at their disposal and they can become better truck drivers and they can be more familiar with the product they're delivering and take it upon themselves to ensure that the quality of that product maintains or exceed expectations. Yeah. I mean, and I see the cost benefit ratio starting to get to a point where it's more palatable for, for some of these companies. And, and like any industry, when you have a new emerging technology, it generally starts off with low accessibility and a high cost point or price point. And then over time, the price point comes down and the availability goes up simultaneously. And then you get to the point where it can be adopted by the majority of whatever industry you're starting to ser- you're trying to serve. I think we're there now to the point where a lot of these ready mix companies, they can't afford not to have some of this technology because the margins in concrete aren't getting any better to the point now where, I mean, a lot of these companies, they can't afford to reject too many loads. You know, you, you can't afford that to happen. So the sensors, which are getting cheaper and more readily available and easier to use, you know, they make a lot more sense now than they would have five to 10 years ago to the point where, like I said, a lot of these guys, they can't afford not to have some of this technology on their trucks. But uh, speaking of the history of concrete and how far we've come, this is a good segue into our guest today. Um, We have Seth Tandit on the show and Seth works for Baker Contracting but he is also the host of the Concrete Logic podcast. And, and you know, we'll plug the, the show a few times within the interview, but I wanted to take a minute and um, just kind of give a, a personal 
recollection of the show. It's it's a phenomenal show. Seth does a great job. And the most recent episode I listened to this morning, right before we recorded this, actually, is he had Paul Ramsberg of Seco on there talking about the history of concrete, part one of a two-part series where they go into concrete at its inception, when it was used throughout history, how it was used throughout history. They talk about using things, you know, Romans using things such as pig's blood for an air entrainment and <laughs> kind of like the first the first concrete additive and then how it's it's progressed through time. It's a it's a great listen. I can't wait for part two. But I uh, told you that story to, to basically tell you that Seth does a great job with the Concrete Logic podcast. So we had him here because, as we mentioned in the interview, a high tide lifts all ships. So if we can get some of our listeners over to Seth's channel. And if we can get some of uh, Seth's listeners over to our channel, everyone benefits. But uh, it was a good a good interview and um, can't wait for you guys to listen to it. So without any further ado, uh, this is Seth Tandit with the Concrete Logic podcast. Y'all enjoy. All right, today we got Seth Tandit joining us from Baker Construction, but more importantly, the host of Concrete Logic podcast. How are you, brother? Um, great. I uh, appreciate you all having me on the show. I'm excited to uh, meet you all. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I feel like I know you a little bit, uh, at least as far as your interests go, because listen to all the episodes of your podcast. It's pretty good, man. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, you and my wife have <laughs> listened to them all. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to start somewhere, man. That's right. We're, we're believers here that a rising tide lifts all boats. So, you got a concrete podcast, so do we want to get on here, talk shop. And we were just talking a minute ago about like what kind of gear you use, how you record it, all the nuts and bolts of the behind the scene. And you started to tell us like what got you into this space of doing a concrete podcast. I'd love to hear that origin story. Yeah, so it was a, a couple years ago, maybe two or three years ago, I you know, I'm a big fan of podcasts. I spent a lot of time listening to podcasts and I was like, didn't know if there was a lot of podcasts in the construction world. Uh, so I was like, Hey, it'd be cool to have my own podcast. I like talking to people anyway, so I might as well record it. So I had a, uh, a friend and he introduced me to a acquaintance of mine now who's an architect and we had me a couple meetings and he was all into it and said, Hey, let's, let's start this podcast. I'll be your first guest. I said, okay. And he's like, as soon as my schedule opens up, we'll get this thing recorded. And, uh, never got back to me. And, uh, so that was a good excuse not to start the podcast. Uh, <laughs> so I had other things in, in my, uh, in my life, uh, going on that was taking up time that could probably used for podcasts, but, but anyhow, and then earlier this year, I saw that same architect, and he's probably going to listen to this. I've, I've mentioned this before on my own podcast. Earlier this year, I saw him at a networking event, and uh, he walked up to me, and he's like, hey, uh, did you start that podcast? And I said, no, didn't start it. And he, he didn't say another word, just turned around and walked away. And I was like, well, that was a kick in the pants. Now I got to start this podcast. So that was the little bit that I needed to get started. And um, so I think that's with anything. You just, just got to do it and figure things out as you go. And 
that's where I'm at today. Still figuring things out. Yeah, it was a little similar to us. Is that the three of us have been bouncing it back and forth for like years. Like how we'd love to do a podcast because like you said before we started recording, like we're talking shop with our friends and amongst ourselves all the time anyway. Why not record it? Because other people enjoy that same subject. We want to bring that into their homes uh, with a podcast. And yours is a little different from ours. And that yours is like a Q&A session where you're really, really getting down into the weeds with some of this stuff. Your questions are so good. Uh, what what drives you to, to formulate these questions? Like, what's your method there that you prepare for these podcasts? I don't prepare. <laughs> <laughs> you just come up with those questions right off the cuff? Because, I mean... I do a fantastic job of asking questions. I, I honestly, I do at, at um, the first one or two of them. I was like, yeah, this is going to be what I want to talk about. And then I never get to those points anyways, because once you, you, you all know, I, I've listened to your, uh, one of your uh, podcast this morning, actually, you get into these things and you start talking to folks and it just opens the door to a bunch of different things. They're like, I want to ask that question as soon as I get an opportunity and it has nothing to do with what you planned on asking. Um, so I, I guess that's just the nature of, of what I do day to day. I'm in business development like you all. And when you're talking to customers, uh, I've learned over the years that it's better just to shut up and listen and you'll hear things and you'll pick up on things. And you'll, you'll learn to ask questions that your client, your customer, whoever you're talking to will be excited to answer. And then they will just keep talking and you'll never, you'll never get an opportunity to talk. So that 10 second spiel you just went on there, that that's it, man. I mean, that, that is a master's class worth of being a business development person and really being a good communicator period. I mean, you're going to do a podcast. I, love that you said you don't have all those questions prepared that you're leading into it through whatever they're saying we do the exact same thing here that we send like three or four bullets <laughs> we're like this is what we're going to attempt to cover and uh, wherever we go we go yeah i mean i think for me it, it that's why i like doing podcasts why i like communicating with people is you just never know and you never know who what what to expect, you know, you see someone and I guess you make your, your assumptions on that person, you make your own stereotypes and then you start talking to someone and you're like, holy cow, this is not what I was expecting. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that your origin story is uh, similar to ours in the way that you started a podcast because you wanted to. I mean, essentially, neither you nor us would be doing this if we didn't find some enjoyment in it. But one thing that I enjoy about podcasts is it gives your guests a long-form discussion-type platform to promote whatever it is that they want to promote. And there's only so much you can do with a cool website or a print ad or a commercial or anything that is you know in a super short window of time. But you can get on a podcast and be mildly entertaining and engaging while also promoting whatever it is you want to promote. And I'm starting to see a lot of people looking towards podcasts as, as a method of education and enlightenment to where 
when Paul, Joe, or I go on a job site or a networking event or whatever, and if someone's there that listens to the, the podcast, that's the first thing they come up and talk to us about is the podcast and what they learned on the podcast and so on and so forth. And it's kind of taken off and, and grown legs. You are uh, more in your infancy than we are. I think you're about six episodes in. We just breached 30. But with all that being said, have you seen that? Have you seen a difference in how people communicate with you uh, if they've listened to the podcast? And uh, just kind of elaborate on that and how it kind of changes the the conversation within the industry. Uh, for me, honestly, I wasn't too worried about, I guess, how many people listen to the podcast. I just wanted to do it. And selfishly, I was hoping that my kids would take an interest in it and like, Hey, dad has a podcast. What is dad doing at work? Cause they have no clue what I do or what I've been doing for two decades. So that was kind of part of it is to get younger folks, I guess, interested in what we do, but also just promote concrete because definitely over the last year, I would say maybe a little less with all the, environmentally friendly things that are going on and the push against concrete. I, I felt like there needed to be enough, maybe one more voice about the good that concrete provides. So that was another motivating factor to do the podcast. But as far as talking to others about it, I think it's more, like you said, I'm, I'm just getting started. So it's more people, Hey, I'm going to check that out. I'm going to listen to your podcast. And so I'm at the, I'm at the beginning here. So just people saying they're going to listen to it is awesome. And maybe they'll pick up a thing or two, or maybe they'll be like, ah, that's too niche for me. You know, that's too, you're, what is, you're just talking about, like you said, we so far really got dialed into some of those things, some of those subjects around concrete that maybe it turns, it might turn some people off, but. I'm not looking to be Joe Rogan or anything like that. He's what hundreds of millions of downloads. So, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> if I get a thousand, thousand, I'd be happy. Do you think the success of your podcast, Seth, and even Paul, Josh, I'll ask you guys this question and get your thoughts on it. Do you think the the success of these podcasts and the fact that people come up to us and talk to us and ask us about uh, you know, uh, what they've learned and heard on it. Do you think that has something to do with the fact that, you know, people are drawn to other people that are just on a screen? You know, if you if you see somebody on YouTube and you ask them something or connect with them on social media and they respond back, I mean, the, there's some people get a little flutter, you know, that they're talking to somebody that's, I don't know, that's getting their 15 minutes of fame, I guess I could say. But do you think that's, that has something to do with the, with the success, you know, with just normal people? starting up these uh these podcasts or these youtube channels and and they're having success just because people are drawn to them i think so i mean i've i used uh, my personal email list to send out like a notification hey this podcast is i put this podcast out there and people that i haven't talked to in 10 years reached out and said oh that's really cool they feel like it's this thing that they think they couldn't do or that we're in some other world that uh only special folks could do a podcast, but anybody could do a podcast. Just need a mm -hmm. computer and a mic. So, but uh, yeah, it, as far as uh, folks coming up and and talking about it, I'm, that's what I'm hoping. And you guys could probably speak to that better since you've been doing this a lot 
little bit longer than I have. So what kind of engagement you're get, you're getting? I'm I was hoping I I tried in the past to do like a uh, monthly newsletter that I was sending to clients about concrete related things. And it was like nothing. I was kind of brainstorming what I could do to maybe engage with clients in a different fashion that maybe they would respond to uh, versus the newsletter. Another kind of motivating factor as well to do the the podcast was it's it just it's just a lot easier for me to talk and record versus typing up something smart and sending it out to clients. So, but you said uh, you know you have a day job too, uh, working for Baker. Would love to know what your life's like over there working for. I mean, literally one of the biggest construction companies, you know, certainly in the United States, maybe even in the world. Yeah, so I, I joined Baker a little over three years ago. They are making a push into the area I, I live in. So I live in Richmond, Virginia. And I actually talked to Baker back in, I think, 2012. I flew down to Florida and talked to the folks down there, met Dan Baker, and was immediately impressed. They they said, hey, we want you to come aboard but you need to, uh, you need to move to Orlando. And I, I told him, I, was, I said, I'm sorry. I'm just not interested in moving to Orlando. And they're like, okay, how about Charlotte, North Carolina? And I, I said, uh, again, I appreciate the offer. I was like, but my roots are deep in Richmond, Virginia. I don't think my wife's going to pack up and we have four kids. So, uh, Richmond's a big part of, uh, my family. So I said, but if y'all ever come to Virginia, it's like, give me a call. So that's what happened a few years ago. They called me up, say, Hey, we're coming your way. Are you interested? And I, I met with the group up in DC and it, everyone just was super nice and um, just, I couldn't say no. So that's been our effort. The uh, last few years is get established here. So working for Baker, I've never worked with a company this big, but it doesn't feel like it's a big company at all. I think each office has kind of their own culture of what I know a little bit about Baker. So I know the culture here in the, the Mid-Atlantic region. I don't feel like we work for a big corporation. The only reason I know that we're, we're a huge company is that we, we get uh, a newsletter, employee newsletter, and we learn about what other regions are, are doing and uh, just this morning, I was reading about our Gulf Coast group and what they're doing. And it's hard to keep up with. Um, and uh, I think we're like around 5,000 employees altogether. So, but the, the the cool thing is, is you could, if I run across something that I've never done in my career, a type of project, a, a uh, you know, a tower crane requirement or, or something crazy, some kind of mixed design that I've never seen before you pick up the phone and it's just literally hundreds of years of experience, uh, a phone call away, uh, which is really cool. So, and it, it could be calling up to DC. It could be calling Houston. It could be calling South Florida. You know, everyone is so willing to help. So yeah, there was a uh, big distribution center that uh, we were chasing a couple of years back that we actually completed we were kind of short estimating at the time and we called Florida office and they're just like, yeah, we're, we'll help you 
you all get that job. It, I mean, it's, it's things like that. It's what they call that abundance kind of mentality. You know, there's plenty of work out there for everybody. If we all help each other. So, and then when you're talking to clients, like I focus on Virginia, but you're talking to clients and they're doing things all across the country. You just kind of keep your eyes and your ears open and say, you know, if a client says, Hey, we got a job up in Massachusetts that we need help on. Then you say, yeah, um, we could probably help you with that. I just got to make a phone call. And so that's really cool too, versus in the past, uh, I've worked for smaller companies and you're more locally focused versus national. So as a GC hunting down these jobs, um, how does business development fit now? You're trying to sell yourselves to the owner that, Hey, we can build this for you better than the other guy. Yeah. So in my area, there's a whole new book of clients that we haven't never worked with before. So just getting them aware of who Baker Concrete is. So in my world, I've always known who Baker Concrete is. Ever since I start concrete, everybody knows who Baker Concrete is. But when you're talking to GCs and clients, they like, we don't know who Baker is. It's like, we're it's like, really? <laughs> so you gotta, you gotta go through all that and uh, explain who Baker, you know, out, how Dan started the company and, and, uh, how big the company is and the resources we have. Um, so just talking to the clients about that, but it's also establishing, uh, relationships with current clients that are working in the same area too. So, so that's basically what it is. And then, uh, just being available by phone, I'm constantly answering the phone. I, I guess that's another thing I learned is you got to pick up the phone when someone calls and and be there to help them that's brought us business in the past just being available even if it's not for your like a project you're chasing or anything just to be a resource for them if they're having issues on another project or they're looking at a project coming up just being available yeah that's absolutely huge yeah and then a lot of communication with vendors talking about upcoming projects, current projects that we're working on, how the, how, how the vendor and, and our relationship is going, making sure those are stable. So. No, so you're right about people being able to call you and you know, you're going to be there to help them out. Like one of our goals is to be the person that the concrete company calls when they have a question they can't solve, even if the product that we're selling doesn't help the situation. They just need someone to talk to that they feel like they can rely on. And man, that's the best feeling in the world. And I, and I can tell you from personal experience that uh, one of the guys that I idolize in the concrete world is Ryan Betts from Argos. Uh, you'll never find anybody say a bad word about him. And he knows concrete and cement about as well as anybody out there. And the fact that he's only like 40 years old is just crazy because he's right. just one of the best. And when that guy called me one day, to see if I could solve a problem that he couldn't figure out. I was, I was like, why are you calling me? You're you're the guy I call. <laughs> that was the best one. So for you to be able to do that in the construction world, I mean, that's everything, dude. Yeah, that's that's what I'm working on. I When people think of concrete in Virginia, I want to be the first call. So that's the goal. Dude, that's awesome. The, it's funny hearing you say that, like, uh, you know, they didn't know who Baker was. Like that legitimately, I was over here laughing try not to ruin your sentence because when Joey and I were in school and, you know, we went to middle Tennessee state, got the concrete degree mm -hmm. there. And Baker was like, that was the place everybody wanted to go. 
06, 07, before the Great Recession hit, Baker was in there every single week at the college, taking uh, juniors and seniors out to dinner, trying to get them to come work for him. I mean, that was the job you wanted. That was the big fish. Them, Lafarge, Tyndall. There were a couple guys that were like the big fish that were coming in there. So yeah. it's kind of funny for you to say that you're talking to people that didn't know who Baker was in the state of Virginia. That that's kind of hilarious. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, I think back like in Ohio and uh, all the kids up there that go to the the construction management schools. I think they're aware of Baker. I hear I hear them when they they come and intern for us. They'll say Baker by the acre. So the, those folks know. I was uh, that was actually checking middle Tennessee out. They're building a concrete management school, right? Or built it. Yeah. The programs existed for like 20 years, but now they're actually uh, building, giving it its own building. It'll have all of its own classrooms. It'll have a greatly expanded concrete lab, stuff like that. So yeah, they broke ground on it. It's constructing now. Uh, a lot of people we know are going to have their names, you know, etched into those uh, walls and doors and stuff. It's pretty cool, man. That is cool. Yeah, so people will be going to concrete management uh, as as their purpose for school versus the way I fell into concrete. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, your route was normal, right? Where no in construction. No, your route's not normal. Oh, All right. no. What was your route? My route was so. I went to high school in Northeast Ohio, up near Youngstown, very, very small town. I think we had 90 folks graduate in my graduating class. In my senior year, all my buddies were, you know, applying to four-year schools, you know, your typical path. And I had no idea what I wanted to do. I applied to go to pilot school in Arizona and Florida. I thought that was was going to do. That didn't pan out and uh, my buddies were like, "No, you gotta, you gotta come down to this big school with us. It's gonna be great." So I, I did that. I applied to the big school. Went to this big school with my friends, and uh, I lasted, I think, eighteen months, maybe two years, and they kicked me out of school. So I started working for a landscape company. I was working under the table, which was great. It was more money I've ever had ever. And I was sleeping on my buddy's floor in a house with six other guys. Mm. And uh, I had a, another buddy of mine. He's like, man, I'm worried about what you're going to do. I was like, what are you talking about? I'm doing great. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, you're not in school. The rest of us are in school. And I said, well, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll figure something out. And uh, he said, no, you need to you need to come with me to. Uh, he was interning with Turner Construction. Uh the big construction management firm. So he took me down to the job site with him and I, he introduced me to the superintendent superintendent. Uh, was walking me around and I just kind of looked around and I was like, Holy cow. I was like, this is cool. And it was like one of those things, like the hair on the back of your neck raises up. It's like, I think I'm supposed to be doing this. And he's like, he's like, well, there's a, there's a community college down the road. Uh, they have a construction management program. You should go talk to the guy that runs it. So that's what I did. I went and uh, talked to him and he said, yeah, we, we, we can get you in the program. <laughs> cause I didn't know. Cause once you get kicked out of college, I don't know if another college would accept you 
or or what so he, he got me in at the community college and then uh, that that same fella got me a job with uh, uh dugan and myers in and this was in columbus ohio he got me a a job as a co-op to work so as a field engineer during the day and then i took the classes at night and that was my first introduction to concrete so i did that for a couple years and uh when i finished the construction management program the guy that was running the construction management program at that community college says you're not done yet we're going to send you down the street and you're going to go to this other it was a small four-year school he says you, you go over there for another uh 18 months and then you get another degree um, on top of the construction management degree so that's what i did so concrete kind of found me i didn't uh find concrete. I had, I had ambitions when I was at the big school, I thought I was going to be a welding engineer and I was taking those math classes they make you take. And it wasn't for me. Uh, they made, they made that clear quick. And then, uh, then I even jumped over to, I was like, maybe I'm a landscape architect. So I jumped over to that program and, and those folks were way more creative and artsy than I was. I, I remember turning in my, it was the end of uh, the quarter uh, project where you had to make this model of this landscape and everything. And I, I worked, I thought I worked really hard on mine. And then I went and turned it in and they had this uh, room that we all turned in our, our projects into. I sat mine next to everybody else's. I was like, Oh, this is embarrassing. I mean, I, <laughs> I was, I was, so I knew, I knew it wasn't landscape architect. And then eventually uh, my bad grades, caught up with me and they asked me to leave. So, oh, I was, I was just saying that's, I mean, concrete found me and it, it, it was just, uh, something it just clicked. I don't think anybody's path or there are very few people whose path is, you know, a straight line to something. And I was, while you were telling your story, I was thinking back on mine, you know, when I graduated college and I started at, uh, it was Columbia state. It was a community college here. I was there for a semester. I think a buddy and I were going to apply to be like x-ray techs or something. That was like the first thing out the door because I could work like the next county over or something to make a half decent living. And uh, that kind of fell through. And then I finished up at Columbia State and I went to MTSU. And my first degree or that I was pursuing at MTSU was actually music business in the recording industry program at Middle Tennessee State because I, I, I loved like country music and I wanted to be in the you know, just kind of in the industry somehow, didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I spent a year and a half in that program. And I, I, I'll never forget it. I just sat, it was a night class. It was like a Tuesday. And I just, I was in the middle of this class and those classes were honestly pretty tough. Uh, and they were notoriously pretty tough. And my grades were kind of down the crapper, you know, that semester. And I remember I just, I, I don't know, something, you know, tinged in my head. And I looked around at the crowd that I was sitting in and I was in, you know, a t-shirt, blue jeans and boots, you know, and, uh, you know, some hill jack from Hickman County in the middle of this recording industry class. And I look around and there's, you know, the, I guess the stereotypical music you know, guys, you know, that just looked like they had the soundboards in the basement and all they did was play music on the weekends. And that I was not a part of that crowd. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
and uh, I, I went back to the fraternity house. Paul and I were fraternity brothers, Alpha Gamma Rho at Middle Tennessee State, and uh, just got the. I knew there were other guys in the fraternity that had concrete degrees, and they talked about how great it was, and you know the atmosphere and all the awesome things you could do after college, and blah 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 blah. And I changed my major. I think like the next day, that week, or that month. And, uh, that brought me, you know, I ended up here, you know, through another couple, you know, bumps in the road and everything else throughout my career. But yeah, nobody's the people whose path is a straight line. They don't have any good stories. We all got good stories. <laughs> sorry. I know this is Seth's interview, but, uh, I got to tell a story about Joey real quick. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> he said he changed his major, uh, like you said, uh, his, uh, his grades at the big school weren't very good either. And uh, he comes in and uh, we, we had like this review at the end of the semester where we all got criticized for how bad our grades were. And uh, they, they stood up and they're like, Joey's got a, like a 1.3 GPA for this semester. And we're like, no, that's impossible. <laughs> like, Joey's not a dummy. We all jumped on it. We're like, bro, you got to do better. Like, what are you doing, man? You're going to fail out. Like, we're just hounding him. You know, you got to come here, be a part of this community. We'll help you out and everything. I'm here every night. We're like, no, that's no, that's not possible. We're here every night. I haven't seen you all semester. He goes, I'm in the study room. Okay, we have a study room. <laughs> <laughs> so the one guy in the fraternity who was actually using the study room, his grades were awful. Well, the next semester, it, he turns it all. He never visits the study room again. It's like a 3.0 GPA and uh, the rest was history, man. Yeah. Well, hopefully our podcast can expose folks to, you know, a trades path so they can avoid those painful lessons. Because I feel like my my college career was probably six, seven years long. It could have been a lot shorter if I knew, hey, this was the thing for me versus all these other things that people were telling me I needed to do or should do. But I, I just even know that the concrete uh, career was in the cards. Like didn't know that was a- available. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point. And I'll try to say what I want to say here without going on a huge tangent, but um, Paul, Joey and I were all around the same age and we went through school at the time where they, they were selling a false bill of goods saying, listen here, you got to go to a four year college. And you, if you fly a desk for a living, then, you know, you'll make all this, all this money. And that's how you become successful. Right. And, the trades were fading away from every single high school, mine included. And and since then, there's been kind of this, I call it like a Mike Rowe renaissance where people are looking around saying, you know, I spent all this money to get out of school making not about half of what they said I would make uh, before the housing bubble, you know, of, of 08 and everything like that. And uh, you have a lot of people that are changing their mind midway through college or even after they graduate, you know, jumping from job to job and, you know, trying to find their niche and trying to find what they like and what they're good at. And what I learned just through experience, but this podcast has helped me learn this. And I want you to elaborate on it, Seth. We've talked to anybody, you know, from engineers, people who even run departments and, you know, successful businesses and the education level is all over the map. I mean, we, we've, spoken to doctors 
And we've spoken to high school dropouts who own a very successful companies. And I think at the end of the day, nothing will replace hard work and ambition. Um, if you can take a motivated individual and, and line that person up with something that they have conviction towards, uh, then that's a that's an unstoppable force. But I think, in my opinion, the problem is and has been for some time now, the way high school curriculum is set up, they are not interested in finding that. They're not interested in finding what you're interested in and looking at ways to how they can make you successful in that field, whatever it may be. I, I feel like they have you know, different a different prerogative. So people like you that went to school for twice as long as you should have, people who dropped out of school and spent a lot of money and debt and took huge risks to start their company, you know, there are failures. There's plenty out there, but all the success stories have that common denominator of just unstoppable ambition. Yeah, because you, you really don't have a choice. <laughs> it's either you make it or you, you got don't. four kids. <laughs> I say this all the time. You'd be amazed. You'd be amazed at what you can do when you have to. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, I think uh, yeah, you 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 hit it. I think high school. You know, I my kids aren't uh, old enough for high school yet, but I'm hoping to uh, get more involved. But the exposure that I've had to the high schools in my area. I think there's a there's an effort to get kids exposed to what's possible in the trades. I really think the issue is the parents. I think the parents are the ones that are steering their kids to the careers. When I was a kid, I was told be an engineer. Engineers always have jobs. That's what you need to go to school for. Never heard anyone say, hey, maybe the trades is more for you. <laughs> Um, but, uh, I, I mean, I did really well in high school. I mean, I loved, I loved school when I was, when I was a kid, it just, when I came to college, it came to a crashing halt, but yeah, I, I, I I've done some outreach, um, over the last, I'd say five or six years where I've gone places where, where kids from, uh, eighth grade and up and talk to them about the possibilities that they could have in the concrete industry. And by the time they're in eighth grade, it almost seems like they have their mind made up on what they're going to do. And to me, that's got to come from the parents. His parents got to be telling them, Hey, these are the successful people in the world. This is the type of job you need to be shooting for. So I, I don't know how you get the parents to look at the trades more. Um, I don't know. I, even, I think parents that are in the trades are probably steering their kids away from it. Cause they're like, you know, this is, it's not easy work, right? It's, it's hard work, but everything's got a cost benefit to it. Right. So you got to look at, Hey, I could go to college and go into debt for who knows how many years, or I could go into the trades and learn as I make money, which, uh, looking back, that's um, in my in my uh, background. That would have been a smarter smarter choice. Um, so, but yeah, I think that's the that's the puzzle is to figure out how to get the parents excited about sending their kid in the direction of the trades. Well, and that's where the uh, concrete industry management program 
like the one at MTSU and it's spread to five other universities. Uh, that is selling the parents that, yeah, you're going to go work in a tough industry and you're going to have to cut your teeth when you get out and do jobs like QC and stuff like that. But you leave with a bachelor's of science out of the university and you have enough knowledge that you should be able to fit in as a manager level role. Now, you might have to earn that. You know, not a lot of people are coming out and just, oh, you're going to manage people even though you don't know anything for real. You know, you come in, they put you in QC or something, so you actually get some kind of experience. And a couple years after that, boom, you've got the college education to back up a a little bit of real-world experience, and now you're helping run a company. And I think that's an easier sell to parents than to say, hey, I'm going to put your kid on a portable plant. You're going to travel like a circus around the country. building big box warehouses and uh, he's not going to get any sleep probably going to work with a few drug addicts and uh it's rough man (laughs) yeah but i think uh i think the the concrete program is like paul was saying i think that's like the happy medium uh you get a four-year degree and you you go to work in a blue collar industry i i've said this all the time and I think this all the time I think the real purpose of you know secondary education like a college or a university is just how to interact with people mm. you know I remember I honestly remember very little about what I learned in those concrete classes and that's not knocking the CIM program well one my memory is shot and two I just can't <laughs> I just don't remember you know uh but uh what I did learn the most in college was how to interact with people in the industry and how to interact with people in general. It was a night and day difference, the person entering MTSU and the person exiting MTSU. And most of that was because, well, one, I think the fraternity had a big, uh, had a big reason for that. Uh, we had to run that fraternity like a business and, uh, that helped out a lot. And then networking with concrete, uh, professionals, whatever events that CIM was putting on. And then the, the education that I got in the classroom just, you know, let me know that, Hey, I know what this person is talking about and I can, you know, I can have a conversation with them if nothing else. That leads me into a question I wanted to ask you. I mean, I don't know how integrated you are with the, the day-to-day operations of Baker, but it, it's a huge company. And I would imagine they're like everybody else. Uh, who could use more employees than they currently have. They're integrating internships with upcoming jobs, both kids out of high school and out of college, uh, because the labor force is, is a lot thinner now than it was 10, 12, 20 years ago. So maybe between changing the parents' minds and these companies going out and really promoting the benefits and possibilities within their companies, maybe we can I say we, the entire industry, maybe can kind of take that micro renaissance that I talked about and really promote the benefits of, of working hard for good money with little to no debt. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful in that. But with that being said, I mean, is do you know if Baker's doing anything specific or in how, how's the labor situation at Baker right now? Uh, I mean, it's, it's the same as everybody else. It's a challenge to get folks uh, so I think it's going to be a mix of uh, recruiting folks to join, but also a mix of, you know, upcoming technologies that reduces the labor requirement. I think that's going to be a big push as well, doing things a little bit different than what we've done before in the past when, 
labor was not an issue. So that's another reason why I've been doing the podcast too, is just trying to figure out other technologies that are out there, be it 3D printing, if that's a solution, which I'm not convinced that's a solution yet. There's uh, guys out there with like the sky screed, Samaro's out there with the sky screed. That's pretty cool. They can reduce the amount of place, place and finishers that you need. So um, I think it's going to have to be a combination of that. That's one thing I learned at, at Baker. The same problems that I've experienced in the past working for smaller companies, they're just at a bigger scale. It's it's just a bigger scale of it. Right. <laughs> and someone warned me of that right. before I joined Baker. They said, I said, did they, is there, is there a silver bullet there? And they're like, no, it's just bigger. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you got some resources. Yeah. Like I said, 5,000 folks, you know, you got a lot of resources and uh, I think we're, I think 13 or so different offices across the country. So there's plenty of resources and we pull, we pull from different offices and vice versa. They, they borrow our folks. We borrow their folks. Well, I think, uh, going back, you know, uh, I don't know when we brought it up about, you know, everybody having podcasts and everybody and so many people having YouTube and stuff like that. Now, uh, that's gotta be beneficial for the industry. You know, there's so much information at our fingertips now versus 20 something years ago, then that the iPad generation, they may fool us. You know, there may be enough information that, you know, our podcast Seth's podcast micro with all of his reach and whoever else out there that's preaching, the good word about, you know, construction and blue collar work, maybe the, the iPad generation will fool us. And, you know, a good percentage of those people, because of all this information that's out there, maybe they will, you know, pick up the mantle and, and go to work and not fly a desk for a living. Yeah. Well said, well said, Joey. Well, and, and getting the message out there and using podcasts to do so is, I think it's certainly important. And it's an, it's a really exciting medium because, like I said earlier, you start a podcast because you want to. So everyone that has a podcast that you're listening to, they're really excited, energetic, and they're they really want to get out there and promote what it is that have has made them successful or, or what it is that they're surrounded by every day. And with that being said, I mean I know you're only six episodes into it here, Seth, but do you have a favorite episode or, or maybe an instance where you were in a conversation with someone and they just gave you like a mind blowing epiphany moment? Do you have do you have a highlight yet of your your podcasting career? Um, I mean, I have, I guess, picking out of six. I mean, I, I appreciate everybody coming on my podcast. That's what I tell them is, hey, I'm just a guy starting a podcast. I can't believe you want to spend an hour of your day with me and talk. But I mean, just uh, la- I think it was last week, Grady Lonigan and uh, released his podcast and just talking to somebody that, uh, I guess my own stereotype of a concrete guy and, and the folks that I've worked with in the past have kind of made me think that there's only one type of concrete guy out there in the world. And Grady kind of blows that out of the water. He just, he's, uh, he's a guy thinking in the future, which is awesome. So there's, I think there's more of those type of folks out there um, than I, than I believed. So that was pretty cool. The other one was Stephanie. She's a chemical engineer for Lehigh and just is one of those 
folks. I usually talk to them a, a little bit before I start recording just to get to know them. And we talk for like an hour before we even start recording. She's just the got loads and loads of info beyond what we talked about on that particular podcast. So like I said earlier, just uh, learning to keep my mouth shut and listening to people. You just, it, just learn about all kinds of different things beyond concrete because we're all people and we all have our things going on. And I don't think I'm answering your question very well, Josh. But uh, <laughs> no, 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 you, 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 you did it very well. You gave me the very political answer of everybody that comes on my podcast. <laughs> it blows my mind and has amazing things to talk about, which, you know, that's that political answer, but it's a good, it's a good answer. Well, we felt the same way. Honestly, Josh, I'm not trying to be political. I think every podcast that I've done there, there's been something I've taken away from it. And it's probably the same for yeah. you all. There's always something that I pull from each one of those that I'm like, I did not know that. I did not know that about that person or know about that specific uh, topic that we talked about. Honestly, that is that is my answer. So it's hard for me to pick. This was my favorite podcast. I mean, my first, my favorite podcast is probably my first one. It got got me going. So, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but e- each one has been something something out of it. I've gained something out of it. It's like children, right? You can't pick a favorite. You're not allowed to. <laughs> I do every week. We rank them every week. <laughs> they know where they stand every week. <laughs> like a death chart. <laughs> Fantasy football. <laughs> uh, well, we can't pick out our favorite moments of every podcast. And it's the time when we ask our guests the same question we ask every guest, which is what is the craziest thing? you've seen on a job site so seth it's your turn man let us know what's the craziest thing you've ever seen on a job site so so many things go through my head but this one particular incident this was before baker so i try to make (laughs) make that clear but uh so i get a call on sunday sunday morning this is when I, i was a general contractor i was a uh working as a gc i got a call from a customer on Sunday morning. And I was like, this is really odd. I did. I, I missed the call. So I went to voicemail and the voicemail said, we arrested your superintendent. I need you to give me a call back. <clears throat> so I'm <laughs> like, what? So I called, I had calling this guy back and, uh, he said, uh, Seth, I just want to let you know, we, we uh, arrested your superintendent and I was like, Oh my gosh, what, what happened? And he said, uh, we caught him sunbathing in the back of his truck naked at the job site. (laughs) 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 So this was at a, at an airport and uh, that he drove to the top level on the parking deck, parked his truck. And I guess he had a, pretty crazy weekend he was trying to sleep it off apparently he was sleeping it off without his clothes on in the back of the truck yeah i knew something was involved there drugs alcohol maybe a little bit of both maybe a whole lot of crazy i was expecting to say it was in florida (laughs) (laughs) no never done any work in florida (laughs) Florida, but anyway that's a florida man that was uh (laughs) 
I would have at least found some shade somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, that is definitely the, the one of the craziest things that's happened to me. I was a as a young project manager to get a phone call from uh, a customer, and uh, yeah, that was I was not happy at all. And then to go into work the next day and deal with all the repercussions of this. <laughs> Man, that's a good one. So. Yeah, that was a good story. All right. All right, yeah. Seth, we really appreciate your time. Uh, appreciate you being on here. Um, we want you to plug your podcast one more time before you go. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you all having me on your podcast. Uh, so if you could check out Concrete Logic, you can look it up. It's on Apple, Spotify, all those different podcast apps. And then uh, there's a website concretelogicpodcast.com you can check out or you can hit me up on LinkedIn and uh, yeah that's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me but again I appreciate y'all's time too awesome man yep take it easy we appreciate you thanks Seth see you man yes sir good luck thanks all right this will do it for this installment of the Ad 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. One final thank you to Seth. Really appreciate his time being on the program. And be sure to check out the Concrete Logic Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. There's more than enough room for multiple concrete podcasts. And uh, as, as long as we keep making content and you guys keep downloading the content and asking for more, we'll be sure to oblige. But uh, in the meantime, check us out on our social media pages as always. Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and then be on the lookout for our next episode coming at you soon. So until then, thanks for listening along. Y'all be good.